tonight on Arena. How the Sopranos changed television drama and Mick O'Dea takes a break from the historical in his new exhibition of still life and interior paintings. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. You're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena. Snowport are a London-based musical collective led by Irish vocalist Lauren Kinsella and bassist Chris Heisen. They released their first EP in 2014 and have been steadily recording and releasing material ever since. Their third studio album is called Wait For Me. It has been described as, quote, multifaceted jewel and as an album that, quote again, opposes cliches in every possible direction. Now, both Lauren and Chris have backgrounds in jazz, but their music, certainly on the basis of this album, defies any simple or specific categorisation. Delighted to have both Lauren and Chris join me on the line this evening. Uh, Chris, I know that you both met while studying at the Royal Academy uh, and you both have jazz backgrounds. In fact, I think you were both studying jazz or jazz was an important part of your studies there and yes, the, the, right. the music tends to be reviewed in jazz jazz publications but it's it is impossible to pin down that's not necessarily a bad thing I guess you like it to be impossible to pin down yeah definitely I mean it has its advantages and disadvantages I guess I guess the the fact that it's difficult to categorize kind of gives you know the listener a kind of you know uh it's there's a kind of mystery to the music which i think really engages with the listeners i think the 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 tough thing is is kind of fitting into whether to know which sort of scene to fit into whether we're in the sort of more in the jazz scene or the electronic scene or the folk scene it's kind of hard to to know where to set our pitch our tent but um yeah that it's definitely um it's definitely a uh an issue we come across quite a lot, <laughs> yep. whether it's whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, and then probably the first question you're constantly asked: How do you describe the music? I, I will not ask <laughs> yeah. you that. I will not ask you that, Lauren. But I will say, I, I guess that one of the things about jazz music, which is possibly why people use that side to it, there's a kind of a freedom and improvisational quality to jazz music that certainly is is present in in what you're doing, even in terms of your vocals, is very present in terms of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when when we um, are working, um, myself and Chris, when we're working together and when we're working um, as the, the septet, so the big group, all of us are um, bringing improvisation as a tool um, to the to the songs. And yeah, it's an it's an important mm. part of of what we do, and especially how Chris and myself work in the in the studio as well. Yeah, yeah which is why I want to start with it with a track called Roots, which I'm hoping Lauren refers something to, as we heard there, the Irish accent. But at the very top of this track, <laughs> we get that kind of vocal improvisation that that you're doing. Just maybe explain a little bit about the song before we listen. Yes. Um, so th- this track and a lot, a lot, all the tracks really were were written in in lockdown. So Chris and myself were were working um, remotely, and you know we were kind of sending each other uh, back and forth ideas. And I think like everybody else at the time, um, I was thinking about the cycles and the walks and stuff that I would take most days alone. You know. Um, while we weren't being able to to be in mm. in um, you know basically to exist just in our homes or outside, so 
they're, it's kind of, it's a reflective and observational uh, kind of um, song about just spending time in, in that way. And, and the, what we hear at the top of Roots then, the kind of the vocal, uh, I don't know whether it's a language or just a little, a few improvisational sounds. I did hear what I thought was the word Ella in there and I wondered if that was a little bit of Irish <laughs> creeping in. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There could be there could be many many uh, voiced uh, languages coming in there. It's it's kind of I I suppose it's it's um, it's where I'm sitting with with vocal improvisation. So I'm always thinking about the voice in terms of sound, right? Okay. And just how how I can treat it, just like an instrument, but but through the voice. Well, let's listen to Roots. The power a little flavour of Roots and that's from uh, Snowport London-based musical collective led by Irish vocalist Lauren Kinsella and the bassist Chris Heisen, both of whom are, are speaking with me this evening. And, and Chris, Lauren mentioned uh, just before we went into that track that it, it's you two really at the, I suppose, as the driving force. Is that the right way to describe it in terms of putting the music together, writing the material to start out with? And then the others who come in, we had a saxophonist there, drummer, violinist, guitarist, and, and Matthew Robinson on piano and synths along with yourself. That septet, is that a, is that a set a band as such or does that change and float around? It's kind of set, really. Um, it, I mean, yeah, you're right in saying it's me and Lauren. We sort of get together and const- you put piece the the songs together, and then we'll send it to Dave, our drummer, and he'll, you know, refine the groove. You know, if we put something gestural in there, he'll work on it. And then the same with Josh, our Kaleo, our saxophone player. He he'll sort of we'll get him in the studio once we've recorded some of the music, and he'll come and you know offer up some ideas and play saxophone on it and sometimes it can really like change the music but i think yeah the the core of the, the core composition comes from myself and lauren and then yeah the the others kind of offer up their talents and and it usually you know changes the music immeasurably um yeah and and in terms of the lyrics then, Lauren, uh, when you have a title like Snow Poet, um, <laughs> there's obviously a suggestion towards um, the, the, the poetry side of thing. And I did see a review today that referred to the literary, the Irish literary side of the of the equation coming from you. Um, are, is, are the texts mostly your own or, or, or do you mine them from other places? Yes, the, from in in this album, um, the all the text um, I've written, but we have we have used some um, poetry in the past. So from um, other albums and EPs that we've made, we we have um, taken some cues um, from, for example, E. E. Cummings um, or just other other poets that mm. we love. But Philip all Larkin, of the text, I think. Um, and Philip Larkin as well, yeah. All of the text um, is 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 my own though from on this album, um, but yeah, we we both. I mean, it's the the, the influences or just the kind of um, you know getting lots of ideas from books, poetry, paintings, mm. art. You know, lots of different um, yeah, lots of different processes for creative creative thoughts. <laughs> 
And and when when it comes to the, the actual performance, then obviously in lockdown there's been no chance to have live performances or very little chance to have live performances. Mm. But I'm guessing that you know, given that again that jazz label that's awful put on the music, that that idea of live performance is hugely important to you, Lauren. Yes, it's it's really important, Sean. Um, and we've we've um, we've really missed we've merely missed being able to. Uh, share the music uh, with audiences because when when you get to tour an album, you know, when you get to play, that's really where the music mm. develops and it's where the, the connection between all of us can just, um, yeah, can go to a, a, a deeper place and and that's that's where everything comes alive. But we, we have, I mean, we, we did a couple of lovely performances um, over the last few months when uh, venues started to kind of emerge and open again in the UK um, mm. and yeah that was I mean wasn't it Chris that was such a special moment to be able to play for audiences again after such a big hiatus you know like Absolutely, a couple of hundred yeah. people in Southampton we were just it was it was it was um, yeah it was very special. You, you yes, enjoy, very what what does the live, particularly with an album like this, I would have thought, Chris, getting it out and kind of testing the the music out in an audience must be hugely important. Absolutely, yeah. An album like the one Wait for Me, which we put piece together in lockdown, was actually very surreal because usually we'd get together and write music as a group and workshop ideas, but this was so kind of remote and you know everyone was here and there and there was no sort of community feeling towards the making of the album um when it came to rehearsing and playing it live it was quite it's almost like the reverse way of making a record where usually you write the songs and rehearse them and then record them when it was the other way around which we'd made them in the studio and then had to sort of decipher them as a band um but yeah it was a great (laughs) moment when, when when we got out to play for audiences and it was yeah it was important kind of closure for us in in terms of like ma- the making of the album and being able to play it live because that's why we make music yeah. so that we share it with like live audiences I, I was talking to one of my colleagues today Lauren about the album and I, I, I referenced the title Snow Poet uh, and I talked about well you can hear real Bjork influences in there and it, for sure to, to my ears and I was accused of being a little bit too literal to think that there was a kind of a, a glacial quality to the music because of the title Snow Poet but did you have any kind <laughs> did you have any kind of that I don't know that, that, that very very top of the northern hemisphere did you have that in your mind in any way? Well, I mean, I I, I think for, I mean, you you mentioned Bjork and Chris has always been a huge fan of Bjork, as have I. Um, And yeah, I mean, you know, take, we, we, um, we've been influenced by a lot of different, a lot of different artists. I mean, um, another one of your colleagues today was, was telling me, was saying, was hearing Kate Bush. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was in there too. Yeah. Yes, her her vocal delivery as well. I mean, it's. I think. I think it's. I, I love. I love these artists. And yeah, in terms of in terms of landscape, um, landscape. I mean, landscape music. Like Chris works a lot um, as a producer with lots of different um, groups, and he also writes music for film. And I think his influence, as in you know, in 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 how he and I work together in 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 how he treats the lyrics and how he brings brings those alive. I mean, that's 
that's the kind of the connection mm. that we're working with. And there are more, I suppose, Chris. There are more instrumentally fields on some of the on some of the pieces. I'm thinking, particularly of something like Tears, really moody mm. nighttime saxophone in there. You were saying, Josh, yeah. Josh Arcoleo, is it? Is that how I say it? Josh Arcoleo? Yeah, Arcoleo. Uh, you know, he he really does bring a, a beautiful nighttime feel to a track like that. Mm. Are, are there? Is the purely instrumental side of thing important as well? I think so. It, with, with Snow Poet, I think it is because I feel like sometimes in the sort of landscape of the listening to the album as a whole piece of art i think sometimes it's nice to have a moment to mm. reflect and and not have a vocal in there and i think it, it sort of they, they serve a purpose in sort of kind of resetting and sort of you know adding a bit of peace to the record even though that track mm. tears is quite moody and yeah. quite it's got a sort of an industrial feel yes. to it yeah, I think it, yeah, it's nice to have those instrumental pieces yeah, in there. Definitely, as you say, give, kind of does break up the album. And I suppose in the live situation, Lauren, it gives you possibly a chance to, to have a breather. Um, I want, yeah, to, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I want to finish up with a track called FaceTime. Now, I'm particularly interested in, in, in the lyrics here. And are you are you referring directly to social media here? Or are you? I suppose you're talking about what we were all dealing with a lot during lockdown, Lauren. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's a it's a it's a um, a question or an observation about how our, our lives have been moved to this yeah a digital space where we were only really kind of communicating with each other through um, Skype or Zoom or WhatsApp and then <laughs> also just the kind of the importance of spontaneous meetings. So mm. um, in in the song, it's, yeah, it, it kind of talks a little bit about this um, interaction that I had with this woman one lovely day on a train. Um, and we just had this meaningful chat. And um, yeah, how hard it is to, to kind of balance all of these ways of communicating, especially at the time when we were writing the music in lockdown. Yeah, well, listen, uh, we all like real conversations better than virtual conversations, that's for sure. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Listen, great, to, great to speak with both of you this evening and thanks very much for being with us. That's uh, Lauren Kinsella there and Chris Heisen. And let's finish up with that track, FaceTime from Snowport uh, and their new album. You tell me that's all we can do Keep starting of Lauren Kinsella there uh, from the album Wait For Me from Snowport and Lauren was speaking to me before that along with her fellow bandmate Chris Heisen and that album Wait For Me is out now. 
The nominations for the Screen Actors Guild Awards have been announced and the SAG Awards are often seen as a key indicator for the Oscar nominations. So that's great news for Katrina Balfe and Ruth Negga in particular, both of whom are shortlisted in the Outstanding Performance by a Female Actor in a Supporting Role category. Uh, Katrina Balfe for her role in Belfast and Ruth Negga for her role in Passing, which of course we spoke to her about here on the programme. But lots to celebrate in terms of Belfast. Uh, the Kenneth Branagh film Balf and her Belfast co-stars Judy Dench Jamie Dornan Jude Hill Kieran Hines and others all of them shortlisted for outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture and the SAG Awards will be announced in Santa Monica California Sunday the 27th of February now 23 years ago in January 1999 The Sopranos premiered on HBO and as the new millennium approached the series heralded a new era for television in its time The Sopranos scored 21 Emmys 5 Golden Globes and many other accolades and though the diner went dark at the end of season 6 a 2021 prequel film The Many Saints of New York starring James Gandolfini's son Michael as a young Tony Soprano welcomed a new generation of fans and kept interest in the series going and joining me now to look at the enduring appeal of The Sopranos is Dr. Claire Clark. Uh, Claire, The the Sopranos really is seen as a beginning of a a kind of golden age of television in 1999. Was it it at the forefront or were there others marching alongside? I think it's really at the forefront, to be honest. Uh, I think it was something that that started a move away from kind of episodic TV. I mean, there was certainly good TV before this. You know, there were shows like ER and so on, which were very glossy and highbrow in many ways. But this was a move away from that kind of episodic, soapy type of television to uh, television with longer and much more complex story arcs, which really allowed us to delve deeply into the characters, which is so important in The Sopranos. And and in particular, the character of Tony Soprano, the James Gandolfini uh, character. I suppose in some ways he is a, a, an anti-hero, but his life as a head of a mob uh, and trying to balance that with his, his life as a family man is central to the to the tension of the show. And it is, the both sides are, are essential. You kind of need the family man and you need the gangster. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's something that we haven't really seen in gangster movies before, is that idea of the family being so prevalent. Obviously, in the Godfather movies, the family that were the physical family were also the family in terms of the mob family. You know, Michael Corleone famously saying, you know, you you must never go against the family. But here it's much more complicated. His his blood family, like people like Uncle Junior and his mother, in the very first series are conspiring to have him killed. And we also have then um, him as a father and a husband who is maybe trying to do a good job and probably not doing a very good job. But certainly we're seeing the kind of the stresses of him as both a mob boss and the head of a family coming together in a way that we haven't done before. And and many people will know that the questions that children can ask will ask you and might ask you can be disarming. But <laughs> I guess very few people have to put up with the question that we're about to hear. Uh, Tony Soprano's daughter Meadow, as played by Jamie Lynn Singler, uh, when she asks him this question, I think there. Are, I think she's on her way to college at the time. Let's have a listen. Are you in the mafia? Am I in the what? 
whatever you want to call it, organized crime. That's total crap. Who told you that? Dad, I've lived in the house all my life. I've seen police come with warrants. I've seen you going out at 3 in the morning. So you never seen Doc Cusimano go out at 3 in the morning on a call? Did the Cusimano kids ever find $50,000 in Krugerrands and a 45 automatic while they were hunting for Easter eggs? I'm in a waste management business. Everybody immediately assumes you're mobbed up. It's a stereotype, and it's offensive. And you're the last person I would want to perpetuate it. Fine. There is no mafia. All right, look. Med, you're a grown woman. Almost. Some of my money comes from illegal gambling and, and, and whatnot. How does that make you feel? At least you don't keep denying it like mom. Kids in school think it's actually kind of neat. Seen The Godfather, right? Not really. Casino-y like Sharon Stone, 70s clothes, pills. I'm not asking about those bums. I'm asking about you. Sometimes I wish you were like other dads. Then like Mr. Scangarella, for example. An advertising executive for Big Tobacco. Or lawyers. Ugh, so many dads are full of shit. And I'm not finally told the truth about this. Yeah, you see, you're always better to tell the truth no matter how difficult the truth <laughs> might be. Tony Soprano there as played by James Gandolfini in a scene with Jamie Lynn Sigler as his daughter Meadow asking him directly if he's in the mafia. But <laughs> there's a great moment towards the end of that clip uh, there, Claire, when he, when he says... How does that make you feel? It's yeah. it's, it's a it's a very touchy feely type of language. It's a very therapeutic type of language, really, isn't it? Yeah, he's already beginning to kind of internalize those types of questions from the therapy he's been going to for his panic attacks, and it's very interesting to see him then bring that into his conversations with people. You know, where he talks to Meadow about you know the idea that Italian Americans are all seen as being in the mafia. He also says this is offensive. This is a stereotype, and then asks her how she feels about it um you know this is this is him kind of tip i think maybe as close to to telling the truth Mm. as we see tony ever he's still dissembling you know he's still trying to backtrack play things down a little bit um yeah well illegal gambling and whatnot covers a multitude doesn't it it certainly does yeah the waste management industry in this um is a nice euphemism for many things Mm. and uh but I think, you know, we see Tony, he lies to himself as much as he lies to other people about what it is that he does and the kind of mm. ethical and moral implications of that. And You mentioned, his, you mentioned there, Claire, you mentioned the therapy sessions and therapy and those therapy sessions, in particular, um, Tony's sessions with his uh, therapist, they're hugely important. And I suppose it is a way of maybe we see another side to the the gangster in those sessions. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is the same year that Analyze This came out, which was also was played very much as a comedy. But this is played. This was a film with a, with Robert De Niro as again a, a, a gangster, but who who was trying to come to terms with his right. what he was doing. But as you say, very much played for laughs. So the Soprano was a laughs. different a different ball game altogether. Yeah, played for tragedy almost. I mean, I think like. Tony is undoubtedly an ugly character. He does ugly things. In that trip with Meadow where she asks him if he's in the mafia, 
he, he sees somebody who has gone into the witness protection program and he murders them in cold blood by garroting them. It's very up mm. close and personal. Um, but in the therapy side, we see his vulnerability. You know, we see what motivates him, the problems that he has with being a mob boss and with being a father and a husband, his kind of, his insecurities, his overwhelming desire to be liked or loved. You know, the fact that he has this terrible mother or mother-in-law, everybody can relate to those kind of problems, I think. Um, you know, he has this terrible grifter of a sister. He has these kids that he's worried about, you know, where they're going mm. to go to college. These are all very human experiences that we can, most of us can relate to. Yeah. Whereas hopefully we can't relate to, you know, what it's like to be a mob boss. Yeah, well, he has all of those difficulties in, in his family life and his, the circle surrounding him. He's also a little bit anxious about masculinity, if we're to go by the clip that we're about to play um, uh, with his therapist. This is, again, Gandolfini as Tony Soprano. And he's speaking to his therapist here, Dr. Melfi, played by Lorraine Bracco. The attacks are legitimate psychiatric emergencies. Suppose you were driving and you passed out. Let me tell you something. Nowadays, everybody's got to go to shrinks and counselors and go on Sally, Jesse, Raphael and talk about their problems. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type? That was an American. He wasn't in touch with his feelings. He just did what he had to do. See, see what they didn't know was once they got Gary Cooper in touch with his feelings, that they wouldn't be able to shut him up. And then it's dysfunction this and dysfunction that and dysfunction my fungal. You have strong feelings about this. Let me tell you something. I had a semester and a half of college, so I understand Freud. I understand therapy as a concept. But in my world, it does not go down. Could I be happier? Yeah. Yeah. Who couldn't? Tony Soprano, as played by James Gadolfini there, and his therapist, Dr. Malfi, played by Lorraine Bracco. Um, t- 23 years ago, I was saying uh, this month, January 1999, in fact, that The Sopranos premiered on HBO, and Claire Clark is speaking with us about the, the series on the programme this evening. Um, I, I suppose it was the placing of those therapy sessions in various episodes that was hugely important as well, uh, Claire. As you just mentioned, he's driving his daughter Meadow in the car and then we, we see this terrible murder. The therapy sessions often maybe humanised something awful or gave us an, an idea of his motivations when it came to his doing something awful or his just having done something awful. They were, they were, where they were placed in the script and in the, in the episodes was hugely important. Yeah, I think so. Um, and for there, in that clip, we see him really struggling with what it means to be a mob boss and what it means to be a father and what that means in terms of his masculinity, which is very fragile. You know, he he wants to be the strong, silent type, the Gary Cooper, but he can't be. He's having anxiety attacks. He's worried constantly and he wishes he didn't have to deal with all of those emotions. But unfortunately, he's human and he does. So, you know, these are the, the things that we get insight into in this series, which I think, you know, is such a wonderful balancing act when mm. you're dealing with a um, a series about an anti-hero, someone who is at many times very ugly. The other the see- other aspect of those therapy sessions that's important, I think, as well, Claire, is the, the, the tension, the sexual tension that existed between the Gandolfini character and the Lorraine Bracco character. That that uh, drove those scenes along with it with an underlying energy as well, didn't it? 
Yeah, and I think, um, you know, Lorraine Brackle, who who played uh, the wife in Goodfellas, it's wonderful to see her in a different kind yeah. of role here. You know, it's a little wink, I think, as well, to see her in this role. And, you know, it's so interesting because at times... Tony is so violent and so awful to her. You know, he he breaks her table, her coffee table. He throws money at her. He tries to kiss her forcibly. But she's she's attracted to him in the same way that I think the viewer is. Mm. There's something about him that she says is like gives her the thrill of riding a roller coaster. You know, she can't look away. She wants that kind of danger in a controlled environment. Uh and there's there's a wonderful moment um and i think it's not a spoiler i don't think to talk about a tv series that's 23 years old i hope um where dr melfi is raped and unfortunately the person who rapes her uh the case against him falls through and she has a therapy session shortly after this with tony where she tells him she was in a car crash but then she breaks down and cries and we see this incredibly gentle side of him where he's genuinely worried about her and he approaches her very slowly and quietly mm. and touches her on the shoulder and asks her what's wrong. And as viewers, we desperately want her to tell him. She knows who it is that's done this and he can enact vengeance on that person. And I think that's one of the, the places yeah. where the therapy puts us in this wonderfully morally ambiguous position where we actually want Tony to use yeah. all of that ugly power that he yeah. has. We, we become complicit in the acts of Tony Soprano, which is very much part of the, I suppose, the, the character idea behind Tony's wife, Carmela Aspet, by Edie Falco yes that that complicity and her desire to have to, to lead a respectable life that's the kind of tension in many ways that's playing along in that characterization by Falco yes absolutely I mean she has the church and she has the beautiful home and she has the children at least one who's going to go to an Ivy League college and she knows all of the things that he does that are wrong, but I think she kind of represses that almost, you know, to use the language of therapy, because she's making this kind of feisty impact. She loves all of the things in her life. And we see time and time again when Carmela finds out something awful mm. that Tony has done to her, some kind of betrayal. Carmela will buy some new furniture or book a trip to Italy or he'll bring her a piece of jewellery or a fur coat and all of a sudden it's swept yeah. under the carpet. Yeah, and that, that comes up in a, in a scene that I want to play here um, where Carmela is, uh, the Edie Falco character, is visiting her therapist here played by Sully Boyer and again, the whole idea of blood money and what you should do or whether you should even be, whether she should be accepting Tony's money is what's at play here. You're wrong about the accomplice part, though. You sure? All I did was make sure he's got clean clothes in his closet and dinner on his table. So a neighbor would be a more accurate job description for you than an accomplice. My apologies. So, you think I need to uh, define my boundaries more clearly? Keep a certain distance, not internalize my... What did I just say? Leave him. Take only the children, what's left of them, and go. My priest said I should try and work with him, help him to be a better man. How's that going? 
Have you ever read Crime and Punishment? Dostoevsky. It's not an easy read. It's about guilt and redemption. And I think for your husband to turn himself in, read this book, and reflect on his crimes every day for seven years in his cell, then he might be redeemed. I would have to get a lawyer, find an apartment, arrange for child support. You're not listening. I'm not charging you because I won't take blood money. You can't either. One thing you can never say, that you haven't been told. There you go, a scene there from a Soprano, The Sopranos featuring Edie Falco as Carmela and her therapist there played by Sully Boyer. Um, Claire Clark going through or looking at The Sopranos with us this evening. I, I mentioned in the introduction, Claire, that really I suppose it was the film and, and the, the wonderful casting of James Galdolfini's son, uh, Michael, as the young Tony Soprano. That really kind of reawakened an interest in it, in, in the whole series. Um, and, and it seems to, maybe lockdown was part of it as well, it seems to be enjoying a kind of a, a an almost a rebirth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was reading a little bit about this week, actually, and, and apparently um, it had a huge kind of renaissance during lockdown. I know that during the very first lockdown, my husband and myself sat down to watch The Sopranos again in full, um, which is something we, we do every couple of years. But apparently lots of other people did that, which I think is wonderful because yeah. it introduces it to a whole new generation. You know, I when I, I work with students and I say, have you seen The Sopranos? And they'll be like, oh, I've, I've heard of it, but it's really yeah. quite old. Um, and now other people are discovering it because yeah. I... I don't think it's I don't think it's been battered. To yeah, be well, let's be careful then and say to people who may be watching it and who may be approaching the end of season six and, you know, the final episodes and stuff like that. Maybe you want to just whistle loudly or put on the kettle now, but you don't want to listen to us talking about this. But people who've seen <laughs> the series will know exactly where I'm where I'm heading with this. It's to that that final scene. Um, yeah. What happens <laughs> and do we know what happens at the end of The Sopranos? Well, it's a, it's a really wonderful scene because there's a huge amount of tension that's built up through Meadow not being able to park her car outside a diner to meet her family. And a lot of these strange quick cuts back and forward to random people in the diner while Tony and Carmela and AJ eat onion rings and seem perfectly happy. And I'm tense um, listening to you describe it. <laughs> it's so tense. And Don't Stop Believing is playing on the jukebox. And it seems like Tony's problems with New York are kind of behind him to some extent. And all of a sudden the screen cuts to black. Mm. And that is how The Sopranos ends. And a lot of people are very angry about that to this day, I think. Yeah. Um, I remember the first time I watched it again with my husband, you know, on the television back in the day, and we thought, you know, what's wrong with our TV? Has something weird happened here? Um, but it was just so unusual yeah. and so 
out there, but, but you know, perfectly in keeping with the kind of ambiguity of the series. Although I think, I think David along. Chase, the creator David Chase, and those who know the series will know what David Chase has said about that ending, and they'll be only too aware of what his feelings are about the debate around yeah. the ending. But yeah. let us leave those who haven't seen it to enjoy that moment of ambiguity. Indeed. And thanks for uh, being with us this evening. And that's Dr. Claire Clark marking the 23rd anniversary of The Sopranos, and all seasons are available to watch on Now TV and Sky if you want to get back to the beginning and re-enjoy it all over again. All across arts and culture media here, including here in Arena, people have been speaking about their top tips for 2022 in terms of music. One name that comes up over and over again is that of CMAT, who has been gaining huge praise for her unique sound and lyricism, covering subjects as diverse as Rodney Dangerfield and eating too much chicken in KFC. We're looking forward to her debut album due out on March the 4th. It will be called If My Wife Knew I'd Be Dead. Here's a taster. It's a single called Lonely. called Lonely there from CMAT album due out on March the 4th an album that is called If My Wife Knew I'd Be Dead and hopefully we will talk to CMAT closer to the release of that album in March Artist Mick O'Dea has been on this programme on a few occasions to talk about his ongoing engagement with historical events during the War of Independence, most notably his paintings of the Black and Tans. Now, while Mick's work on historical figures and events does continue, he's taken a break and his exhibition at the Hillsborough Fine Art Gallery in Dublin opens on January the 20th. It has as its subject still lives and interiors and delighted to have Mick O'Dea in, in studio with me this evening. I suppose fair enough to say, Mick, that portraiture and landscapes really would be what people would think of when, when I think we talk about, enough, about your work. Yeah, Still life and interiors, no. What, what, what sent you that direction? Or I've been doing it all along, but uh, I haven't had the opportunity to show a cohesive body of mm. interiors and still lives uh, as a, an exhibition before. There was an exception uh, in the Kevin Kavanagh Gallery uh, in 2008. I had an exhibition called Ceremony. And it was essentially just objects that I made myself out of cardboard sitting on uh, tables uh, and mm. with a tablecloth. And they referenced um, Renaissance paintings whereby you would find uh, images of churches in miniature maybe being presented to a saint in order for them to realise a church being built. But I was making these things out of cardboard. But uh, still lives and interiors are things, subject matter that I fall back on occasionally uh, when I feel that there's too much noise coming from my paintings. I was funny, I was, I was going to say, the, is it a type of palate cleanser? But you, you've, you've kind of answered it in, in that respect. It's a way of doing that. So the image that I'm, I'm going to get tweeted uh, right now at RTE Arena, if you want to look at these images as Mick O'Dea is telling us about them, 
I, I can see why this would be a palate cleanser or it would get rid of the noise. It's the image that you handed to me when you came in. It's, it's on the invite to the, the opening of the exhibition. It's a it's a table, simple table in a in a corner of a room or a section of a room with a green tablecloth on it and nothing else. Mm. So mm. is that the is that the idea? Let me empty it out so that I see what comes in afterwards. Precisely. And uh, the the cloth is not a very elegant one, but it's one of a number of of what I consider beautiful colours, uh, fabrics that I've bought over the years, mainly in Paris, to act as backdrops for portraits of people. So that, for instance, if somebody comes into the studio, I look at them, I look at what they're wearing, I look at their complexion. Mm. <clears throat> and if it's a case of just painting them head and shoulders without having to have any background, I'll pick an appropriate fabric colour and put it behind them. And uh, then I... you then I, I like the colour so much that I end up painting it as a thing in itself. And as you say, it's like a palate cleanser. It's a way of emptying the brain. It's contemplative. It's meditative. Uh, It also lacks the urgency quite often of doing a portrait or working in the Mm. landscape or indeed working on the narrative paintings because it's you can kind of make your cup of coffee. You can look out the window. You can think about what you're doing. And it's it's all about invention, really. Funny enough, though, the minute I and it's a very green tablecloth, mm. it has to be said. I See, think the the green in it now might be a bit more acidic than the actual real one. In ah, it. Yeah. right, okay, because mm-hmm. yeah, when I kind of saw the green thing, maybe it's a get. This could be this is what people do when they view paintings. I mean, oh, there's that there's an Irish reference there. There's a reference somehow to yeah. the War of Independence. It's Mick yeah. There has to be, yeah. and maybe that's my reading, or was it kind of tickling at the back it of your head? It could be somewhere? there subconsciously, and of course, I'll never contradict what people read into paintings. Yeah, you know, because that's what that's what people see. Um, very different uh, image. Um, is another one that I've that I'm treating now on mm. at RTE Arena. This is. The, the image of a head on on a on a plaster floor or yes. on a on a very ornate floor rather maybe just explain what's at play here. Well, uh, it really was a painting that I did to commemorate the twenty fifth anniversary of the de- the death of our beloved dice man Tom McGinty. Ah, yeah. So the it's street artist that many people remember used to stand on on Grafton Street, yeah. absolutely st- stock yeah. still, and then frighten the living daylights out of you when he moved. Street artist extraordinaire. Mm. Um, uh, myself and Aidan Dunn, he's or not Aidan Dunn, but Aidan. Um, Murphy, uh, his manager, and Susie Kennedy, uh, we organised a uh, commemorative exhibition with the help of the uh, Little Museum of Dublin to commemorate his 25th, the 25th mm. anniversary of his death. That's the plaster cast taken from his head that he then modelled his masks on, that he wore. So, some, for instance, Tom painted his face and he might have a mask on the back of it which looked like his painted face so sometimes it was difficult to tell which, which was, was the front, front and which was the back. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, to me it's, it's got a poignancy and I, I used the uh, interior of a nightclub in Berlin that managed to survive both the First and Second World War as the appropriate um, backdrop or the, the uh, appropriate environment for the head of Tom to uh, sit in. Yeah, yeah and, and what better type of backdrop than a, a Berlin nightclub. That exactly, kind of Weimar Republic, burlesque, everything that Typifies that, everything of, of yeah, the, the great man that was right. Tom McGinty. Now, whatever about my imagining the War of Independence in the green tablecloth mm. on the first image we spoke about mm. at RTE Arena for the third image that I'm putting up now... <laughs> No question that there's a war of independence mm. theme here. We have a table. What is on the top of the table? 
Um, the the that painting actually dates from approximately nine or twenty oh eight twenty oh nine, and what you have on the top of a table, which incidentally is a table that I got made in Maine, uh, it's a shaker reproduction, and it, the simplicity of it is what I was attracted to. So I tend to surround myself with bits of furniture and pieces that, if I want to paint. I'll paint them. Yeah, I don't like. Uh, I can't look at a piece of furniture that I find unattractive because I'm not going to paint it. So I'll surround the environment. Will be surrounded by objects that I want to paint. Now I, I was lost for what I was going to put on that table, but at the same time, uh, I I came upon an image of a Free State officer arresting an irregular or um, uh, anti-treaty IRA man in Dublin. Uh, that would have been around. Uh, the you know, the beginning of the civil war and that that famous block in Upper O'Connell Street, where the IRA were holding out. So, uh, what you have presented on the table is uh, in miniature is a Free State officer uh, mm-hmm. arresting a, a Republican, and underneath in text handwritten is arrested. Yeah. In case anyone uh, has any doubt about Didn't what, know what was going, going on. on, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, now obviously. The, the the land or the the um the still life and the interiors mm. are a large part of this exhibition. But I mean, the, as you said, it's not as if the historical work has ceased altogether. It's still going on. In particular, um, you wrote a, an essay for the Lavery exhibition at the National Museum of Ireland at Studio and State. That 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 particular exhibition. What did you think of of Lavery as a as a portrait painter? Fabulous portrait painter. Maybe not as. Great as Arpin, but as great in lots of ways. And the particular um, project that he undertook at uh, Hazel, his wife's urging, was to paint the uh, delegates, both British and Irish, during mm. the um, the treaty. And it's a fantastic um, undertaking. Well, it's a great legacy that we have because it allows us to look and contemplate uh, the whole period around the treaty in a different way through examining and uh, looking at the portraits that he painted. Uh, any particular ones that st- 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 stood out for you? I know, you, you, I, I don't know if it's right to say you loved the Dev one. Did you admire the Dev one? Oh, I like the Dev one, yeah. Uh, it, I mean, I think they're all good. Um, there's The Barton one is kind of, uh, you can, uh, Barton has come and sat for him but you can see that he was obviously telling him that listen I'm a very busy man uh, I'm not going to look at you mm. uh, I've got a lot of paperwork to do you can paint me uh, whilst I am uh, examining the paperwork uh, That's a, it's almost cursory as if uh, Barton isn't participating the, the Griffith painting I think is a very very strong one uh, the profile of Collins, not of Collins, but rather of De Valera. I think that uh, as soon as De Valera walked into the studio in Cromwell Place, uh, that um, Lavery looked at him and kind of thought, my God, look at the shape of that head. Look at the length of him. Uh, look at the profile. Look yeah. at the Adam's apple, uh, which would have been quite prominent in De, De Valera at that time. But I think was right throughout mm-hmm. his life. And I think he was thinking of almost like uh, the coinage that you get uh, yeah. and you get a profile. And after all, this guy was the president Absolutely. of the Republic and, and he and he has him in profile. Yeah, not an ounce of a County Clare man now in you when you're speaking about Dev in that fashion. <laughs> I had the, uh, I was actually, I was telling somebody uh, recently, um, I used to serve mass for De Valera when he was uh, getting mass in the pro-cathedral in Ennis on the 15th of August every year to commemorate the 
time that he was arrested in, in Clare. But uh, I often thought that if I was to write an autobiography, it would be that I was De Valera's altar boy. <laughs> Great title for an autobiography at any rate. Mick, thanks for coming into us this evening and Mick O'Dea's exhibition uh, Inside, a, a, an exhibition of still life paintings and interiors selected from the studio is at Hillsborough Fine Art Gallery in Dublin from January the 20th through until February the 19th is the correct. Yeah. Uh, Mick, thanks as I say for coming into us this evening. But that is our lot. Liam Murphy researched the programme for us this evening. Broadcast coordinator was Janice Furphy. Liam Mullen was on sound and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. I will talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio.